This is Jimmy Corain, and you are listening to another episode of Improv Nerd. And I don't have to tell you guys this. We have another great episode, especially if you're fans of the podcast Risk and the comedy sketch group The State, which was on MTV back in the 90s. Our guest today is Kevin Allison. And Kevin is a writer, director, and like I said, he was a member of the sketch comedy group The State, which was on MTV back in the 90s. 11 members. That's huge for a sketch comedy group. He is also the creator, the curator, and host of this uncensored weekly storytelling podcast, Risk. And Risk is a huge hit. It regularly ranks in the iTunes Top 10 Podcasts and gets well over 1 million downloads per month. Kevin was kind enough to give us some time out of his busy schedule before he comes to Chicago, bringing his live version of his podcast, Risk, to the Chicago Podcast Festival on Friday, November 18th. We talked to Kevin about what he learned working with the state and if he has any regrets, how he found his comedic voice after a couple years being on national television. Also, I bring a story to him, and he helps curate it and craft it and shares us with the process of risk. So if you want to have a, uh, a story on risk, this is a, he gives you some really good tips on how he would craft that story for his podcast. Before we get to the interview with Kevin, uh, I, I know uh, this has been a huge story here in the States, and I like to say in the States because I know there's a lot of people, there's, there's, a, there's a big audience in Canada and also in, in Europe listening to this podcast. Uh, so I, I, it makes me sound like I'm international, which I am, aren't I, really? Uh, don't you think of myself as international? I'm wearing a beret right now, uh, and I have a little uh, uh, mustache that I drew on, and I'm drinking a cappuccino, so that makes me international. But uh, the Chicago Cubs uh, won a baseball team here uh, in, in Chicago. The Chicago Cubs won the World Series, which is a huge deal because they haven't won it for over 108 years. And I'm a huge Cubs fan. I, I've been a Cubs fan my whole life. There was a couple of years where I was a Dodgers fan, but I switched back to the Cubs. And I, I've been tortured by this team. Tortured. I mean, talk about I'm Catholic, but I, I've done far more suffering with the Cubs than I've ever done with Catholic. So they win the World Series, and uh, I went over to my friend Daryl's house, uh, and I watched it uh, with some friends, and um, they won, right? And you'd think I'd be happy and joyous and all that, but all I can focus on, I, I felt that the manager, Joe Madden, uh, overmanaged the, 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 the couple of the games in the series, uh, especially the last game. I, I don't know why he pulled a, the, the starting pitcher out early, and this is my opinion, he, he got him to the World Series and they won it. But all I could focus on were the mistakes that I perceived he made, which is such a good insight in me. And it, it is how I continually take joy and find a way to buzzkill it. So here they are. They win the World Series. And I'm like, ah, why did he make that move? Why did he make that move? And it just kills any sort of excitement, any sort of celebration, any sort of joy. And you know what? That is a metaphor. That is a metaphor about how I live my life and how when I have success, is exactly what I do. I savor it for maybe three or four seconds and then I go right to, okay, what did I do? You know, what could I have done better? You know, this didn't go that way and that didn't go that way. And I pick it apart. So I get success, I wait a couple seconds and I pick it apart. So... That probably doesn't surprise you. Anyways, you're going to love this interview. Kevin Allison is just, he's so honest, just like his podcast, and you're just going to, you're just going to love it. Here it is, the Kevin Allison episode. Enjoy. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd, oh yeah. Jimmy's a nerd, he's a nerd. Kevin Allison, thank you so much for being our guest on Improv Nerd. Thank you for having me. Um, what's so funny? Oh, I don't know. I'm just, this day is so crazy that, you know, like uh, you, I go from one meeting to another and, and when you do it over Skype or FaceTime or whatever it might be, it, it's, it's just so funny. You feel like you're going into different worlds. 
worlds at different times of your day. Now, you grew up in Cincinnati, and you came from a very sexually repressed background. I think you said all of Cincinnati is pretty sexually repressed. <laughs> well, that's kind of a joke that I make in my stories. I mean, I grew up in Cincinnati in the 70s. Cincinnati is very, very, very famously Republican. But what a lot of people don't know is that it's also extremely Roman Catholic. It's a, it's a very German town. And so there's a lot of I, I grew up just not aware that some people were not Catholic, you know. Um, and so, yes, I, you know, my mother was just a classic, you know, ni 1950s kind of gal who had a uh, just the word sex itself made her very or and still to this day makes her very, very uncomfortable. So being a kid, a precocious kid who happened to be super conscious that he was gay from day one like like really some of the first thoughts that i had were about being attracted to the kid next door and stuff like that so and knowing what the words gay and fag meant at a really really young age that just had a huge effect on me feeling like i was a freak and like I had something to be hiding, and like if people, if I came out, if if I let people know what I really was inside, that I would lose friends and family. So that that had a big effect on my formation as a person when I was a kid. How does that help for comedy? Well, you know, I realize, you know, I remember specifically being terrified uh, when I was five years old because I had just had an experience with the boy next door, this kind of a slightly sexual experience with the boy next door, and, and walking away from it thinking, oh, my God, what, what am I going to do when I, next year when I go to kindergarten? Because then all of a sudden I'm going to be surrounded by lots of new kids. And, you know, the more new kids there are, the more there is the chance that people might – be able to look at me and kind of identify that there was something wrong with me inside. So I remember that very first day of kindergarten, I got in trouble for something, just talking at the wrong time. Like this is some, something stupid, you know, the, just a kid not paying attention at the right time. So I got held back after everyone else was released from class. And I was laying, I was supposed to be laying my head on the desk. And this little girl named Rachel was, laying her head on her desk on the other side of the room. And I saw that the teacher had left her stapler on my desk. So I thought, oh, here's something. I, I could uh, do a little trick here. So, so I, I went pss, 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 to this girl across the, the room, and I acted like I was going to staple my thumb. I, I, it was kind of this little routine I started into where I started to act like, oh, 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 I'm about to put a staple into my thumb. And then she would laugh. And I was like, oh, my God, that's awesome. She's laughing. And so I do it again, like, whoop, 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 I'm about to staple my thumb. And she laughed more and more. And I got so carried away, so excited about the fact that I was making a stranger laugh on my first day at school, that I went all the way through with it. The third time I was like, oh, 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 and I put a goddamn staple right into my thumb. That's called commitment. You didn't know that that, <laughs> that age was commitment. Now, in high school, you do pranks and you got naked at parties. And, and also at NYU, you would take your clothes off at bars. What is it about being with a group of people that helped you express yourself? It was, you know, that that growing up, when, like, for example, that first experience with that girl, Rachel, in kindergarten, I realized, oh, here's a winning formula. If I can make people laugh, then they'll know I'm weird, but they'll be okay with it. You know, I, 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 I'll be weird, but in a way where they feel like, oh, uh, it's entertaining. You know, like, like I, I have some control over the extent to which they think I'm weird. And, and so, yeah, I think that my whole life has been a process of, and I think a lot of comedians deal with this, feeling weird, feeling fucked up, feeling, you know, um, a lot of the, you know, just human feelings. Uh, and, and sometimes coming out with them in a funny way, uh, that really kind of is a release. It's a release, and it, and it helps to make 
everyone feel oh we're all kind of freaky like that inside you know so so yeah i think that you know i mean it's not like it was a cure-all i mean i'm still fucked up in all sorts of ways you know i feel like my life is an infinite process of coming out about some stuff trying to own some stuff more rather than being ashamed of it all that kind of thing but uh yeah it, it it's it's definitely using comedy is a way to at least make all this stuff a little bit more um, palatable for people to to actually be releasing themselves and talking about. Now, in college, you're you're part of the sketch group called The State, which a lot of people know. You guys get a TV show on MTV from 1993 to 95, and there's 11 people in the group. I mean, that is a lot of people to 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 manage and. Uh, and you guys wrote and you directed uh, and edited it. Um, and as I was watching one of your monologues today, I get the sense that there was it was a mixed feeling. Like it was great to, to have this show, but also you didn't feel like you were one of the strongest members uh, of that of that group. Yes, you know, the, there's a phenomenal episode of my podcast, Risk, called "Remembering the State." Uh, it was our 300th episode, and all 11 members of the state share at least one little anecdote of their memories of, you know, back then being at NYU and then going on to MTV. Uh, and yes, you're right. You know, I, I discovered this group when I was a freshman at NYU. I saw the group's first show and I was absolutely blown away by the energy, the creativity, the kind of like, I don't know, the uniqueness of the group's voice. Uh, it, it just had a, a real, like, it, it had the feel of very smart but very silly friends joking around together. And so, you know, at that time when The State was on MTV in 93, there, you could, Kids in the Hall was around. Um, of course, we had Monty Python to look back at. Mr. Show was yet to come. So for a lot of younger people, a lot of people who were in grade school, high school, even college at that time, they didn't feel like they had a lot of comedy out there that was specifically coming from a young, smart, and very silly, absurdist kind of mind frame. And so that's what the state became. Now, in the first days at NYU, we had this egalitarian attitude. We had this attitude of we're a, we're a democracy. We are, um, you know, no one is, there's no hierarchy here. Uh, but it was really, really, really hard to maintain that among 11 people as time went on because we had this rule that whoever writes the sketch gets to cast the sketch. And that meant that the stronger writers were just bound to have more room for growth, which is tricky because in a sketch comedy group, different people do bring different things to the table there will be someone who's actually really good at kind of directing or organizing or kind of acting as a sounding board there will be someone who is really really good at acting but doesn't have any chops at writing at all um you know there'll be someone who might have a real feel for editing or something like that so you know it it, it became uh, re it very very there was a lot of tension in the group about the fact that the guys who had the greatest ease bringing in sketches every day um, always got to cast everything and usually cast themselves as the lead. So, you know, there was kind of no way around it. There was kind of like we never really learned how to deal with that uh, other than just kind of having heart-to-hearts about it whenever we could. But, but yeah, it, it was tough. Now, uh, in, if I had to do it all over again, would I know how? how to approach it differently. I know that I would try to not be such, such a perfectionist, that I would try to collaborate a hell of a lot more. I wish that I had improv classes back then. See, one of the things about the state that people don't understand was, we, this was before you could take classes in all this kind of stuff, right? So there were no sketch comedy classes, no improv classes, no 
discussion of comedy in a theoretical or or nuts and bolts kind of way that we had access to in New York City. So we were just kind of doing it all from instinct and basically our love of Monty Python and early SNL. Uh, and actually Sesame Street and the electric company and stuff like the Muppet Show, you know, that kind of stuff as well. Um, but yes, it was, you know, if, if I had to do it all over again, it would be try to just collaborate a hell of a lot more. Try to write more without being such a perfectionist, being okay with pitching something and it being just, you know, falling over, you know, lamely. And, uh, oh my gosh, I wish I had just, you know, if I could do it all over again, just take classes in improv because what they teach you is that you can just keep trying and trying and trying and falling down and falling down and falling down. And it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's really much more about how often you're able to get back up and do it again than it is about how often you kill. Now, now that you're a success with Risk, you're a storytelling guru, you, you teach uh, Story Lab, is that the school that you, you've started? Uh, the Story Studio. Story Studio. After, after, uh, the, after the state is done and other people go on to be successful, how did you deal? I am the most jealous person. I started here in Chicago with a lot of people that have gone on to, to do great things. Did you have a hard time with their success as you were as you were struggling? Oh, I had a horribly hard time with it. I couldn't watch the show uh, Viva Variety at all during the time that it was on. Um, and I didn't really even watch much of Reno 911 during the time that that was on. Uh, so yes, I was incredibly resentful and jealous and hurt. But at the same time, I had no one but myself to blame. In what way? After the, well, after the group broke up, I became pretty antisocial. Um, you know, the group had been such an intense rivalry, had had so much like, you know, kind of cutthroat. We, we joked with each other in a very roasting-like way. And to me, someone who doesn't have a big ego and doesn't have a very competitive, like, fighter-dominant sort of personality, um, I, I left the state feeling kind of bruised and battered, you know. Uh, my lower man on the totem pole, nice guys finish last sort of uh, mentality left me feeling like, wow, do I even want to be in comedy, you know? So I, I started developing a lot of stage fright, and I would rarely get up on stage. You know, without that group to come to every day where there was a deadline and you were expected to present something every day, all of a sudden, I had the freedom to do things on my own terms, and doing things on my own terms meant I started focusing more on survival jobs than I did on getting up on stage, because I was just dealing with social anxiety and stage fright. So I spent way too many years kind of avoiding and fearfully kind of like having half my foot in the industry. And those were the crucial years when I should have been getting up on stage every single night, meeting new friends, going to workshops, you know, like... Those were the years when uh, that's my biggest regret is that after the state broke up that I didn't continue to get more and more involved in trying new things with different people and making sure I was getting up on stage on a regular basis. So, yeah, I really did have my time in the belly of the whale there. And then, of course, resentment and hurt makes me feel like, oh, they're not inviting me so much into their projects anymore. Well, of course they weren't because I kind of like wandered off into the wilderness. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I was resentful and hurt when I saw them all becoming multimillionaires in Hollywood. But at the same time, I knew I, I had kind of brought it on myself to a certain extent. But you, you, say, you say that now, but, but is it, was it therapy that got you the perspective that you have today? No, you know what it was? It was true storytelling. It was, it was finally, you know, a, a couple of things happened. In 2000, I left the business altogether. I decided, that's it. I'm quitting. I'm not going to be a performing artist anymore. So what do you so do? I, try, 
Uh, I went back to get my master's in English literature. I thought I might, you know, study to become a professor or something like that. In the meantime, I started taking on jobs as an editor at uh, a book publisher and then later at magazines. So I was I was going the writerly route, the writing and editing route. Um, four years later, someone contacted me in 2005 and asked, hey, do you want to teach a sketch comedy class at Media Bistro, this little school that was starting up in New York for people who are interested in various uh, kind of off-the-beaten-path off kinds of writing? So I said... Okay, yeah, what the hell? I mean, you know, I was desperate for money. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I think I could teach a sketch comedy writing class, even though it's been years since I've been in the business. And it was getting up in front of those students and realizing that I could tell anecdotes about back in the day when I was in the state. And some of those anecdotes could be really, really like inappropriate for a teacher to be sharing, like, you know, sexual, you know, stuff about drugs. Give us one. Stuff. Give us one. Oh, well, you know, like, the, 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 would tell the story about the time I tried prostituting myself right before the state got picked up by MTV. It was hilarious that, I, you know, I, I went out, attempted to be a hustler for the first time that weekend, and then completely failed. I was a disaster. And I, I didn't get that in order to be a hustle hustler, you really have to have some savvy. You have to kind of be a con man of sorts, you know? Um, so I had this disastrous first encounter with this guy from which I didn't even get paid. And the next morning, there's a call that we've been picked up by MTV. So I, I've got a job. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I would tell stories like that to my students and realize, oh my gosh, it's okay to be too kinky, too gay, also sometimes too friendly and polite and Midwestern, sometimes too vulnerable. I would just share these true stories in front of this room full of people. And they were, you know, they were big fans of the state and they were totally receptive to all sides of my personality. So I think it wasn't quite consciously in place then, but that was, I think, the seed planted of, oh my gosh, you could just stand up in front of a room full of people and be yourself. Because for all the years after the state broke up, what I was doing when I would occasionally get up on stage was crazy, kooky, big, broad characters. I would get up on stage and do bits as Charles Manson or Jesus Christ or, or you know, these, you know, Frankenstein's monster, all these crazy characters. And they would tell their stories. And they were, they were great bits. They were great monologues. But something wasn't quite connecting about them. So... In 2008, I decided, all right, I'm back. I'm re-entering. I, I, I'm completely, like, coming back and, and becoming a performing artist again. Because I just felt that writing wasn't enough. That, that there needed to be a part of me that was actually using my, my physical voice to be expressing some of what I was writing. So I created this show called EFA. It was five characters who had fucked up their careers. So it was very, very autobiographical, right? Like there was literally a character in it who was a 1920s Jewish vaudeville performer who had, whose partner had gone on to become a big star in Hollywood when he was left behind in poverty on the Lower East Side. Now, you know, what could be more obviously autobiographical than that? You know what I mean? Uh, except that I'm put, doing this crazy, kooky, old Jewish voice, right? So I did this show, EFA, and I did it at uh, San Francisco Sketch Fest. And while I'm doing it, you know, like almost no one showed up because I had fallen off the face of the earth so no one knew who I was anymore. Michael Ian Black was there, who was another member of the state. And he was among the, whatever, 15 people in the audience that night. And afterwards, I felt really dejected about the way the show had gone. And I said to him, what'd you think? And he said, I feel like the audience just wanted you to drop the act. 
start telling your own true stories right from the heart. And I said, ah, but I'm too gay. I'm too kinky. I'm too Midwestern and polite. I'm too spiritual and yet too absurdist. I'm too many weird things that casting directors don't understand. And so this audience would never understand. So it feels too risky. And he said, that's it. That's the word. If it feels risky, then you're opening yourself up in a way that the audience is going to open up to you. So I said, all right. I had been avoiding this whole idea of getting up on stage and being myself for years and years and years. And finally, I was like, okay, I feel like this is like, like God shaking me and slapping me and saying, try, try being risky and telling something true. So when I got back to New York that very week, I called Margot Lightman, who had a show at UCB called Strip Stories. And I knew they were all stories about people's sex lives. So that was the occasion where I was like, I will tell about that first time I tried prostituting myself. I'll tell a story that walks you through that whole night, the nitty gritty of it, you know, uh, with, with the sex and everything. And that'll be super risky. But when the time came to do it, I was freaking out because I was like, oh, my God, UCB a lot. You know, in those days, it had started to attract a lot of like frat kids and stuff like that. I was like, they're going to be looking at me like, who the hell? What? Is, yeah, it, it, I was terrified. So I called Margo and I said, I don't think I can do this. I have to back out. And she said, oh, my God, that's great news. I said, what? She said, on the day of the show, someone always calls and says, oh, this is too risky, the story I have in mind. I have to back out. And she said, if I can convince that person to go ahead and do it anyway, that'll be the story that knocks it out of the park that night. So she convinced me, and I did it. And it was truly a transcendent experience that night because – in the beginning of telling the story, I did experience all those things of, oh my God, now they think I'm too gay. Oh my goodness, now I sound too intellectual. Oh, holy shit, did that sound too Midwestern and polite? You know what I mean? I had those, those feelings at the beginning of it. But then it just started to melt away because just the honesty, just, just being so revealing, people just started to trust me and open up to me. And... It really didn't matter if I was talking about something that was incredibly sexual and intimate and uh, kind of, you know, shocking in some ways. Uh, they really just opened up to me. And, and I felt like I was conversing with them rather than reciting at them. Now, when you, when you say open up to them, in storytelling, it's a lot different than stand-up. They're not necessarily laughing. So, so oh no! So how yeah. how are you picking up? Okay, they're they're actually they're I, I, they're this is a conversation. Yeah, you know it's it's a it's something that you feel in the air, and and this is one of the reasons when we do risk shows, we will always tell the lighting people to have the lights just a little bit up on the audience, more so than in a normal show, so that the storyteller can see some of the eyeballs out there. Because it does really help to be able to, when you're telling a true story, to be able to occasionally, like, actually look into someone's eyes and see that, okay, yeah, they're following me. Because, yes, you're right, like, uh, uh, I, I can't tell you how many people I've invited to do the show who are comedians. Even Louis C.K. said this to me. He said, oh, God, the tendency to want to get a laugh is just such a habit and so well-trained and conditioned into me that that would be the, the hardest part about telling a purely true story on stage is, is the fact that most stories, most true stories, because, you know, the stories we share on Risk are usually about the most emotional or the most loaded moments of our lives. Um, it, it's only appropriate to be true to the story, to have, you know, a, a chunk of it where it really does get super sad or it really does get uh, like kind of angers you or, or, or so, some emotion other than just a laugh every 10 seconds, right? Um, so it is, it is, 
a, a strange sort of listening. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. It is a, it is a different kind of listening that you have to um, apply uh, to, when you bring a story up on stage to connect with that audience. And the other thing is, because I've done uh, a lot of storytelling here, I've done one-man shows, and when you get up and you tell a very vulnerable story, regardless if it goes, especially sometimes when it goes well, there's this performance shame that comes afterwards. How have you experienced that and how have you moved through that? Well, you know, what I tell people is when people work on stories for us with risk, because another thing is people have to appreciate that. Risk is a curated show, meaning unlike, you know, a moth story slam where someone's name is just picked out of a hat, for a, an evening of risk, that person has to have walked through that story with us first. And a lot of people are very resentful about that. A lot of people are like, oh, what? I've, I've got to go over the whole story from beginning to end with you on the phone first or send a recording of it into you to work through? And it's like, yeah. Because my job as the curator of the show is to start like, like a therapist poking at you, is to start saying, whoa, 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 I want to hear more about your mother, you know, that kind of stuff that will really add much, much deeper dimensions to the story. So, yeah, you do need to run it by us first. But in the process of running over the story, the first, we, we kind of naturally go through this therapeutic process where they know they're being cared for by the show. They know that the risk audience is incredibly supportive of people revealing all kinds of things. So they know that it is a quote-unquote safe space to be talking about anything. Now, afterwards, if there is shameful stuff that happens, sometimes it'll happen online. People leaving nasty comments uh, either on the listen pages of the Risk site or just on Twitter or Facebook or stuff like that. People being critical. Oftentimes, it's from a more politically correct sort of, you know, like how dare you have used such a tone when you describe people with Down syndrome that way or that kind of thing where... You know, or, oh, I heard you laughing at a certain point when you were telling your story about rape. I don't appreciate the idea that someone would have humor while talking about something like that. You know, like, like we have to warn our storytellers that sometimes just because you are tapping into this really emotional stuff, uh, people will want to make you wrong or will have their own reasons for having screwed up reactions around it. And that's just a part of being a public figure. You just have to it, it, let it be like, okay, there are going to be haters out there. And I just have to live mm -hmm. in the belief that owning my shit talking about it as frankly as I can and putting out putting it out there as well thought out as I could was a noble and courageous act and fuck it if it didn't go over so well with some people you know so let, let let's let's just talk about the risk process for a second uh, let's say I'm on risk and uh, this is a true story that happened to me and and what how you would poke me and and I'll, I'll be real brief on it I was going to Los Angeles. I, I just lost my father, and uh, I had a lot of shameful thoughts and a lot of. Uh, uh, and I wrote down on a notebook. Uh, on my notebook, I said, "I, I, I want to die." Well, there was two people uh, in the in the next aisle who saw me write, "I want to die." Are you oh wow! And so they 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 um, told the uh, flight attendant, and the flight attendant came to me and said, "Hey, um, could we see you in the back?" And I said, what, is there a problem? And she says, I hope there's not a problem. And we went back there and it was all, the, the whole flight crew was back there. And they said, somebody has reported that you want you to die, you know? So basically they thought I was a terrorist. Right. So I go back and I sit in my chair and I'm like, oh, fuck, I have four hours for this flight, right? And I'm like, maybe I am a terrorist. And they come, the, the, the head flight attendant comes back and says, well, we've got to confiscate your phone. And I said, why? Oh, I said, well, shit. if you don't give us your phone, we're going, oh, uh, the, 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 the captain is going to land in Iowa. And I'm like, oh, Ugh. okay, fine. God. 
So now I got three and a half more hours. I'm having resentments to the two people that called me and I know who they are and they're getting drunk through this entire flight. I get off the flight and I meet it, I met by security who have, have my phone. And uh, we, you know, I say, look, I'm not, you know, basically I'm not a terrorist. I'm really pissed off. I'd like you to upgrade me the next flight. We can't do that. And they give me, give me my phone back. Now, if I tell that story, what, what, what are you going to do in terms of risk to, to poke me? Right. That's awesome. Well, first of all, one of the first great things about that story is that, A, there's this bigger thing that's going on, which is the death in the family, right? Yeah. And then there's this very specific moment happening in a particular location, a particular time, you take us there, and you could show us what was going on on a certain person's face, the look in their eye, the expression on their mouth, um, the actual dialogue that people were speaking to you. You were even including some of it right there uh, so that we feel like we're really seeing a scene unfold because the first thing you want is to zero in on a few moments that you can really take us there and bring alive with, you know, how someone's breath smelled or what's song was playing in the room next to you or what feeling you were feeling in your guts as someone said such and such so that we really feel like we're kind of like experiencing it and taking it in with our senses something happening uh but you've also got this larger thing which is you know you might have in the beginning of the story some of the memories of your father, right? It was your father, right? Had yes. You, yep. Yeah. So, so you might have, like, walking into the whole plane situation, some of the memories of moments of bonding or, or moments of, of where you were at each other's throats or, or you know, a moment of where you really just looked up to him and admired something about him or found something really curious or strange about him. Like, just kind of, like, filling in for us some of that relationship and trying to find some of the metaphors, uh, maybe in some of the things that were just going through your daydreams around those days for how, how you, you know, all that was going through your head and heart around dealing with that uh, death situation, you know, because uh, one of the things that stories can do that other forms are not as well equipped to do, stories deal really well with mixed emotions. There's something fascinating about someone dealing with grief and then all of a sudden having to also deal with like this defensiveness around being accused of something. You know, I, I mean, that like all of a sudden you've got this immediate, like this clear and present danger of maybe being accused of being a terrorist. And God only knows <laughs> you might have had some daydreams at certain points once you were in that situation of the worst case scenario where that could go, you know, because we've all heard stories about people who were falsely accused of potentially being terrorists, right? Um so, yeah, I think that what you and I would do if we were working on that story, and by the way, we probably should because it sounds awesome, is what I would usually do is I'd say to you, hey, can you send me a 15-minute version of it uh, where it's you speaking into a phone, you know, the voice memo app on your phone, and you're just trying to go through it, unpack as much as you can, beginning, middle, and end, and send that to me. And then I would start sending you notes saying stuff like, oh, since you gave such a beautiful, positive memory of your dad at this point, maybe you can remember one moment that was more iffy or maybe even negative between you just to, like, make it even more dimensional here, you know, that kind of thing. And how and so so you get that and then how how many times do we go back and forth before we go okay this is the version I'd like you to do uh, usually about twice and then that person would get up on stage and do it or if the story started to become like holy shit this should really be an hour long story or so or, or if the story has a ton of action in it and it seems like it would be really fun to do in in another way. Then we also do these radio-style stories. So, for example, just last week, 
the episode we put out called Unbreakable was an hour-long story told by Melanie Hamlet, who is used to performing on stage, but she did this one at our show in Los Angeles, and it was about an abusive relationship where the guy raped her and then was threatening to kill her and everything, and it, it just was very clear from her telling of it in Los Angeles that, oh, there's just so much more to this, isn't there? You know, it just felt like uh, she didn't get to give as much in the beginning as she wanted, and she certainly didn't get, get to give as much in the end as she wanted of just, like, unpacking this whole experience. So I said, listen, the next time in New you're in New York, come on over to my house, and we'll sit down, and we'll, we'll record it, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, and then we'll add music and sound design to it and release it as a radio-style story. So, yeah, that's the other way we put stuff out there. And how much did this do, being doing the state on MTV for for those years of ninety three to ninety five, where you had to write, direct, edit, has helped you with with putting together uh, risk on a weekly basis? You know, I mean, I, I would say that that there's several things. I mean, there's there's probably about ten major ways that being in the state helped prepare me. One was. The state just had this work ethic. The state just had this attitude of, oh, my gosh, it doesn't matter how much of our lives we're sacrificing as far as, you know, losing sleep, you know, sp you know maxing out our credit cards, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe not spending enough time on our intimate relationships as we should. But let's just sacrifice as much as we possibly can in order that the material be as awesome as it possibly could be. So I learned this passion for putting your 150% into what you're doing from the state, for sure. Another thing I learned from the group is we, we understood that to be short, to, to, to say things succinctly and get to the point is uh, usually more effective. So literally when we were editing the sketches, we would edit some, we'd edit like 120, you could edit like for down to the 24th of a, of a second, you know, the, the of a frame. Images yeah. Per yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So we would often just edit like, Oh, just take a few more frames off of that. And, you know, and then we would feel like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just, it's just a, a fraction of a second, but we would feel like, yep, yep, that made the joke work better, you know? So just this attention to detail for cutting whatever is not necessary, you know? So I, I, I'm just amazed when, when we're editing, especially the radio style stories, because there you're really able to work with the words in a sentence. You can literally take most sentences that, that people say and cut out a few words in the midst of any sentence and have it come out better. Sometimes we're even able to take three different sentences, chop them up and put them back together so that it's getting all the same great information in there, but took, you know, literally like a fifth as long to say. So there really is something to getting to the point and, and, and really nailing it briefly rather than going the long way around that I learned from the state. And, now, oh, I'm sorry, go on. No, no, go on. Oh, let's see, what else did really comes, I think that, you know, here's something that I learned kind of like, that, that maybe I didn't realize at the time was that even though I talk so much about the regrets that I have, about how I would do things differently if the state was breaking up right now, or if I could go back to being in the state again, how I would do things differently. But the fact is that all those guys continued making, you know, comedy that uh, is mostly on the more uh, silly side. And it's very much like, it's very much like they've stayed laser focused on that completely silly stuff. Whereas kind of sticking to my guns and being myself and like <laughs> leading the, even the most tragic points in my life, for example, like that, that story about prostituting myself is fodder for amazing stories. So 
as much as I might beat myself up for, oh, I should have collaborated more, I shouldn't have been such an iconoclast, I shouldn't have done this, that, and the other, it's also served me, you know? It's also, like, like, now I get to be really absurdly funny whenever I want, but I also have total freedom to get very, very serious or go into emotional terrain that most people don't think to go into, even on, you know, other storytelling shows. Risk is able to tackle, because we don't have to be on NPR, for example. I mean, we don't, we don't, it doesn't have to be family friendly at all. So we will just go where other people don't dare to tread. And I might not have ever come up with that show if I hadn't, like, been such a, stick in the mud for so long and, and led such a tragic existence between the state's breakup and it occurring to me, I could start doing that, you know? No? Well, I wonder too, um, because, you know, I'm like, does, does, does Kevin ever run out of stories? And I wonder that, you know, the, you know, after the state and the 12 years until you started to find your voice, if that's almost like a, a reservoir of, of great material. Yeah, you know what? I don't run out of stories, but what I do, well, there's a couple answers to that question. One is because I've turned risk into a business, you know, there's putting out the podcast once a week. There's the, you know, we do about four or five live shows every month, you know, not just in New York and Los Angeles, but the touring shows. Uh, there's the teaching of the workshops that I do through the story studio. So I'm really, really, really busy now. And I, I, you know, I have that old procrastinators habit when it comes to coming up with new stories. So I'm always saying, God damn it. I should, I should work up a new story this weekend and then don't, you know, so that's one thing I have to keep my eye on. But another thing is, is that, I really actually do kind of think that there's almost no end to the the extent to which you can continue peeling away layers, you know, like even as I've created this incredibly honest and very, very um, revealing voice on the show, there is plenty of stuff I have still not had the guts to come out about. And, you know, sometimes it's it's because it's so nitty gritty and psychologically I don't know, yucky or whatever that, that, that I'm, I'm just not even sure how to begin to express it. But I, I can't, you know, when I talk to my therapist about it, I'll say, well, there's the story of this, but I'm not sure I'm ready to say that, or I'm not sure that people are ready to hear it. And he'll say, well, you could tell that story 10 years from now. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I feel like there will still be stuff to reveal uh, for a long time to come. Is it more stuff about like for me? This, the, sometimes the hardest stuff is oh, I'm jealous, or you know, oh, here's absolutely. a character, here's a character defect of mine. You know, I'm a self sabotager. Is it that yes. kind of stuff? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, like for example, uh, one of the things I'm best known for is my kinky stories. Right? There's a story called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp, which is about an hour and a half long story about me going to this sex camp uh, several years ago and just doing everything under the sun, all these completely crazy, pushing your boundaries sort of sexual activities. Um, but nowadays, I would like to see if I could create a story to reveal to people, hey, you know what? All these years later, I still have the same damn hangups. I, I still... Uh, am really, really anxious about what they call in BDSM dominant anxiety. I, I'm still like worried about uh, erections or being able to come in such a circumstance or, or being able to like, I'm, I, I worry about who I'm attracted to and who's attracted, you know, like, like, so it, it's funny to like have developed this reputation for being Mr. Kinky and feeling like, gosh, I, I should tell a story where I basically confess, no, I'm, I'm still psychologically just an absolute beginner with this stuff as far as insecurity and shame and anxiety go. <laughs> I, and I, you know, I'm in therapy twice a week uh, and, and I love it. And uh, how has it helped you with your storytelling? Oh, well, you know, it's pretty amazing because this new therapist I have, 
I very much made a point of, I was, you know, I've had several therapists throughout my life. And, you know, I've admitted to people that when I created risk in my head, part of it was kind of a fuck you to the archetypal mom in my head, right? Part of it was me saying, oh, hold on one second. The, I just have to, oh, she's you- gone. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Who's the gone? Lady was, okay. was leaving and she left something here. Okay. Um, we've never we've never had that before, just so you know. Uh, interviewing somebody where, <laughs> where, where, the, where, where you have uh, the cleaning lady. Is there. Did she do did she do a good job? She was did a some, good job. OK, there wasn't something like this interview, like, oh, I, I needed you to, to do something, you know, the clean the vacuum in the back. In the, in the well, she did. She she okay. she motioned to me if, whether she could vacuum. I said she okay. could and she did. And I don't think you heard it. Um, OK, I did not but, hear it. That, you are you're. <laughs> I, this is a very professional podcast, so I, I'm glad that, that I, I, I would have felt a lot of shame if people would have heard the, the vacuuming. In the <laughs> well, I used to use a, a cleaning service where it would be uh, young guys, and sometimes they would wear almost nothing. But that became way too distracting. There was very little cleaning that ended up happening. <laughs> um, therapy. Okay, we were talking okay, about yeah. therapy. And how it helps yeah. with your storytelling. Yeah. So, so, you know, I've admitted that risk, I started it at the age of 39. And at the age of 39, I was saying, fuck it. I don't want to turn 40 and still be afraid to just be who I am in my art. Uh, and, and what's the main? main thing that makes me afraid is the shame that I have going way back from my mom saying, don't be too this way. Don't be too that way. Don't use so much of your facial expressions. Don't run up the stair that way. You look like a girl. You know, why do you have to be such a nonconformist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so risk was my way of saying, you know what? Fuck it to that voice in my head. Uh, here is a show where you can be the weirder parts of yourself and you can let whatever, whatever show, right? Um, now, when I got, and, and the therapist, the three therapists that I had in the past were all older women, and I found that I was always kind of bumping up against that same thing in my therapy in my 20s and 30s of kind of a mother thing started to happen. So... Once I had success with risk and I kind of came out as a kinky guy and all that kind of stuff, I decided I'm going to find a gay man around my age who is very kink friendly. So I found a guy who literally has written books around BDSM and stuff like that. He's gay. He's my age. And there is a it's a very, very different kind of therapy because it's a it's it's almost there are times when it's like speaking to a peer like a friend you know what i mean and so that's been very interesting to, but one of the things is he's very he very much admires risk and what risk is about so i can literally now come into him and present the first draft of a story and then start working uh, you know unpacking things more with him uh, you know, not necessarily st- more stuff that I would necessarily put in the story or not, but just talk about, okay, here's here's what I'm thinking about revealing. What do you think of this? And what else comes to mind? What am I not revealing in here? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think people realize that for me, like going to therapy, like it's a really good place to try out new material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, you know, your therapist will, might call you on it every now and then and say, are you trying to entertain me, you know, or, or, or are you putting on an, a new kind of mask? You know, it's very, very interesting. My friend JC, who is the producer of Risk, she's the business brains behind Risk and the Story Studio, she said to me the other night, you know, you are so uh, vibrant when you have conversations with people in interest interviews or on other podcasts or during your own stories, but you're so, you have so much social anxiety at parties or bars or social situations. Maybe you should walk into parties, bars, social situations, kind of thinking almost like putting yourself in the head of 
kind of almost like you're being on a podcast or something, just in order to instigate the sort of connecting with people that can start a conversation. Now, I haven't consciously started trying that yet, but I think that that is an interesting little mental trick to, like, get me out of my own head when I feel that social anxiety kicking in in social situations. Well, because, like, now I would imagine, you know, same for me, when, when I do a podcast or do a performance, there's a sense of a persona. I'm putting out a persona, and there's something safe about that. Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, you know, one of the things that I explain to people on risk is that we do have, we, we have different personas, you know, like, like, like I, when I am being goofy during the hosting of the show, it's a different, it's a different seeming me than when I'm in the midst of a really heartbreaking story and getting to, you know, I'm unpacking like, you know, a, a a moment that uh, where I was just at a total loss and totally devastated with hurt. You know what I mean? Like it's a, so there are these different sides to our personalities that, you know, I think it's okay for us to be conscious that these, there are layers to us and, and that, you know, often, well, that's another thing that kink teaches you too. Like I've seen in both drama therapy and in kink play, it's weird to see how sometimes a side of a person can come out. I used to do this drama therapy sort of class where the teacher would coach, you know, okay, now we want to invite Kevin's warrior into the room. And I'd start walking around in circles and she'd start, you know, yelling stuff at me and getting my warrior all psyched up. And all of a sudden a different character would come out of me. It's kind of similar to sometimes in BDSM. If someone like puts a blindfold on you and ties you up and starts treating you like a slave or something like that, you, you find yourself behaving in ways where you're like, holy cow, here's, a, I just spoke with a voice that didn't even sound like my own. You know what I mean? So, so I think that a lot of us should actually do to spend more, take more opportunities in life to let different sides of our personality out from inside and see what happens. So when we're done with this podcast and we're about to wrap this up, and, and and you know you're not being interviewed, what is what are you what 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 are you what what do you like then? Oh my gosh, well, that's a great question. I can be incredibly um, depressive and melancholic. You know, I can be very very worried about am I. Am I doing things the way that normal people do things? Do you know? Because there's, I've always been an oddball. You know, I never learned how to drive. I never really learned how to keep a house clean, which is why the house cleaner was just here. You know, there's all sorts of, like, adult things that I, I've just never, you know, like, I, 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 not just adult things. I think even in my childhood, I always felt like, oh, my gosh, I'm such a freak. You know what I mean? So... I spend a lot of time worrying of, oh, my God, what are normal people doing right now? And I spend a lot of time, like, worrying, am I doing all I can to be my most? You know what I mean? Am I, am I you know, there's still that part of me that procrastinates and stuff like that. And almost no matter, I, I have this feeling that almost no matter how much I accomplish, uh, I'll, I'll have that nagging feeling of, yeah, but you could have always done this and that and the other as well. You know, it's, it's very hard not to compare yourself to other people, especially you turn on Twitter and you, you know, every time I look at Twitter, there's like three new friends of mine who have gotten new big opportunities in, in the, who used to be students of mine or whatever, you know what I mean? So yeah, all of that is really taxing. You know, there, there, you can, one, I, I've had to, over the years, train myself not to be so melancholic, not to be so down on myself, beat myself up so much about what I'm not accomplishing or, or you know, worried about what other people, how other people are doing this, that, or the other. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot of years very, very dependent on alcohol, marijuana, stuff like that. So in these, in these past few years, I've been training myself also to 
be healthier, you know, uh, to to use healthy eating and exercise and avoidance of some things as a way to to change. I, meditation has been one thing that's been very helpful of just teaching me that no matter what is going through your head, thoughts or feelings, they are passing phenomena and that there is something at your core. There's something that you can tap into out there that is always just okay. You know what I mean? Like, like there is a, there is a, ground zero inside you that is usually actually okay. And if you can sometimes see past the storms of particular habits of thought or moods that strike or, you know, realities that seem, you know, way too daunting to get over, there's always something inside of you that's like, no, you know what? You've lived through worse than this. You're okay. You know what I mean? So we've got to wrap this up, and we ask the, the same question to, to, to our guests. If, what piece of advice would you give somebody starting out in improv or comedy today? Oh, well, the one thing I would say is take lots of workshops and or get up on stage as much as you can and be super open-minded about making new friends and trying new things out, you know, try not to beat yourself up too much. Try not to worry about failures, big or small. Just keep in mind that really, I think that the people who succeed the most are the people who just keep showing up, uh, whether or not last night was a terrible night or whether the last joke they told fell totally flat to just keep on, you know, uh, risk now, you know, like in, in October, you know, the month that just ended, we got 1.7 million downloads. And, you know, that the reason we're getting that many downloads now is because all those times in the early years that we were like, oh, my God, we might have to close shop or, or take out another credit card or yada, yada. We just kept on keeping on, you know. So it really is about that perseverance. Kevin Allison, thank you so much for being our guest. The podcast is Risk. Check it out. It is wonderful. It's vulnerable. It's hilarious. It's all of those things. Uh, and we will see you in Chicago uh, in November for the Chicago Podcast Festival. Yes, thanks so much. I can't wait. Okay, thank you, Kevin. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. I want to thank our guest, Kevin Allison. And again, I want to remind you, if you're in Chicago on Friday, November 18th, you've got to go see his podcast, his live version of his podcast, Risk. It's part of the Chicago Podcast Festival. And for more information... Go to chicagopodcastfestival.org. That's chicagopodcastfestival.org. I'd also like to thank my producer, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you would not be hearing my voice right now. Also, Sam Bowers, the director of Improv Nerd. If you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes, workshops, and intensives, and to sign up for the Improv Nerd blog, go to jimmycorain.com. Also, follow us on social media. Go to the Improv Nerd Facebook page and like us because it really would help with my low self-esteem. Follow us on Twitter at Improv underscore Nerd. And then go to our YouTube channel. That's not YouTube. It's YouTube channel. And that's Improv Nerd Podcast and see clips from the live show. We're also so lucky to be a part of this. And it's getting bigger and bigger. Feralaudio.com is getting bigger and bigger and bigger because they have some of the coolest podcasts out there. So go to feralaudio.com. And uh, if you want to, this would really help us all out. Uh, go to Feral Audio and they've got um, a, a thing for Amazon. So click on Amazon when you're ordering a book or something. And that's just a great way to uh, support the great work that Feral Audio is doing it. And we're part of that. We're part of Feral Audio and we're doing great work, don't you think? Uh, I, 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 I know. If I tell you we're doing great work, we're doing great work. So if I just keep repeating it like a hundred times, you're going to start to believe it. Uh, also, I want to thank you for listening. And as, you, as, as always, remember, walk, don't run.
Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly-collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype and that he has come for his cocaine. As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh, my God. 